ओम नमो भगवते श्री um so very in in the past month or two several comments on uh, my blog have been referring to this so i was planning to uh, talk about this bit during this meeting but at the end of the last meeting there was i think one unanswered question was uh, was pending which was on this same subject um this is a subject bhagavan what bhagavan taught in this regard is very very clear but unfortunately it's not always recorded clearly in books and what has been recorded in some books of what bhagavan is supposed to have said or even what bhagavan may have said it has been misunderstood because it hasn't been presented in the context of bhagavan's teachings as a whole when we when we study bhagavan's teachings we shouldn't take uh take um things that he said or wrote in isolation without considering them in the context of his teachings at a, as a whole and this is particularly true in the case of this subject um most of the questions that are raised about this are based on what has been recorded in day day by day that is recorded by devaraj mudliya or also what he recorded in his reminiscences um <clears throat> often it's uh, um it's uh people refer to other books such as um david godman's um be as you are but all those quotations refer back to what was recorded by devaraj mudliya um but we we shouldn't just consider these i mean in talks for example there's a frequent mention of um of free free will um in fact bhagavan didn't use the term free will there's no equivalent of the term free will in tamil the term that bhagavan used in tamil but is usually uh translated into english as free will is icha kriya swatantra free the term english term free will is a very um imprecise and ambiguous term what people generally mean when they talk about free will is the freedom to do what we want but the freedom to do what we want is not free will it is free it's not freedom of will it is freedom of action the term bhagavan used in 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 tamil it's a sanskrit term actually but in tamil he used this term is icha kriya swatantra um icha kriya swatantra means freedom of will and action but it actually consists of two components uh icha swatantra and kriya swatantra freedom of will and freedom of action um Bhagavan sometimes spoke about these individually but generally since they're very closely associated he the term he used was icha kriya swatantra which means freedom of will and action 
that icha means will or liking, kriya means action, and swatantra means freedom or independence. So this is the term that Bhagavan often uh, used. Um, so whenever you read in English books like talks, the term free will, um, in talks it's sometimes printed as two words, free will, more often it's pronounced, it's um, hyphenated as free hyphen will, and in some places it's, um, it's, it's uh, the two words have been fused together as one word, free will is written as one word. But if you read in, um, in talks, for example, but it's very clear, Bhagavan, it does talk about freedom of will. And um, for example, in talk 209, uh, Mr. B.C. Das, a physics professor, asked about free will and destiny. And Bhagavan answers, whose will is it? It is mine, you may say. So there's a whole passage there where Bhagavan is talking about freedom of will. As I say, the term he would have used wouldn't have been free will, it would have been Icho Kriya Svatantra, or in some cases, maybe just Icho Svatantra. Um, uh, in, towards the end of that, in the final paragraph of that uh, particular passage of talks, uh, Bhagavan uh, is recorded to have said, free will is implied in the scriptural injunctions to be good. Um, that is all scriptures all gurus, everyone tells us we should be good. But if we have no freedom of will, then why should, what is the need for any scriptures? What's the need for any gurus? What's the need for anyone to tell us we should be good if we have no freedom? So obviously the fact that all scriptures tell us to be good um, implies that we have freedom either to be good or to be bad. And likewise, in another passage, um, in uh, this is in uh, in uh, section four two six of talks, uh, Bhagavan is asked, uh, "Has man any free will, or is everything in his life predestined or preordained?" And Bhagavan replies, "Free will holds the field in association with individuality. As long as individuality lasts, so long there is free will." All the sastras, sastras mean scriptures, are based on this fact, and they advise directing the free will in the right direction. And then he goes on to give his deeper teaching, which is find out to whom a free will, to whom free will or destiny matters, abide in it. Um, so um, that is, so long as we have individuality, we also have freedom of will, is what Bhagavan very clearly says here. And it's also very clearly implied in his own original writings. Dev Rajamudliya always had difficulty um, um, understanding this. Once he said to Sadhuam, this word, when I say, or this would probably have been around about 1960. It wasn't in Bhagavan's lifetime. It was some, some years after Bhagavan's lifetime. Devaraj Mudliya once said to Sadhuam, one thing I, but is still not clear to me is why Bhagavan often said that everything is predetermined, but at the same time, he said, we have Icha Kriya Swatantra. I asked Bhagavan this so many times, and whenever Bhagavan explained it to me, it was clear to me. 
But then after some time, I would get confused about it again. Um, so can you explain it to me again? He asked Sadhuam. And Sadhuam then explained it. And then Devratam would say, yes, this is just what Bhagavan explained. And when you say it, it's so clear to me, just like when Bhagavan said it. But after some time, I get, again get confused. I don't know why I always get confused on this point, Devratamudriya said. So the person who has recorded the statements but lead everyone to suppose that Bhagavan taught that there is no free will, was himself confused about this subject. Um, but I'll just read a few of the comments that were recently posted on, uh, on, uh, in comments on uh, the various uh, videos on my YouTube channel. In one of them, someone wrote, um, in Day by Day with Bhagavan, in response to this question, are trifling acts in his life, such as taking a cup of water or moving from one place in a room to another, also predetermined? He replied, everything is predetermined. Not an atom moves except by his will. And someone wrote in reply to that uh, comment, I too am aware of this, which leads to the understanding that there is no free will. Everything done by us is already predetermined, and all good and bad actions by us are already decided. Please, that I mean, addresses me, please clarify. Um, likewise, in another comment uh, uh, just last month, someone wrote, um, referring to something that I had said in one of the videos. This is the, a video um, from uh, uh, Bhagavan's Aradhana last April, um, I spoke about the law of karma as taught by Bhagavan. On this video, someone wrote a comment recently. At 2.25, words to the effect, not all actions done by mind, speech, and body are predetermined. Whereas in an audio book by Medicine of One, Karma, Destiny, and Free Will, Ramana Maharshi audio book, uh, of the book, Be As You Are, at position 1640 uh, through to 1740, Ramana states every action, no matter how small, is predetermined. This is also my experience. At age 49, I became absorbed into God consciousness while walking to work. It persisted for almost three hours. During this, I was aware, but not at all engaged. The body continued to do what it does, uh, it got to work and worked. I was experiencing nothing. I was just aware without an opinion. This showed me that all actions, doing, everything that can be detected through the senses is predetermined. This is the view of that person. Um, but it's a little confused what he says, because he says, he, I was aware, but not at all engaged. The body continued to do what it does. It got to work and worked. I was experiencing nothing. Well, if he was experiencing nothing, then how he knows the body got to work? So it's a little bit unclear. But anyway, that's it. That's the conclusion he arrived at from that experience, that everything is um, predetermined. Um, uh, and um, in another comment, someone wrote, I'm a bit confused with what Michael told about karma in the first 30 minutes. 
according to Vedanta, self has no karma associated with it. In that sense, if one associates with karma, uh, doesn't belong, doesn't it belong to ego? Uh, so as Bhagavad, as Bhagavad Gita, karma is the creative urge to express itself. Please clarify. Um, oh, this is the other one I want to read. Uh, someone else wrote, I need clarification regarding Bhagavan's teachings. If all happenings are according to the design of God, commission of a sin is also one's destiny, question mark. This is the sort of confusion people get to without because of not understanding what Bhagavan is saying. So, yes, it is true. Bhagavan often said everything is predetermined. But we need to understand this in the context of his uh, teachings more generally. That is, to understand this correctly, we need to understand the law of karma as it is taught in Vedanta and as Bhagavan taught it. That is, according to the law of karma, whatever actions we do under the sway of our vishayabhasanas, vishayabhasanas means our inclination to experience vishayas, objects or phenomena, whatever actions we do under the sway of those vasanas are called agamya. Vishayabhasanas are the seeds that give rise to likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on. So the vishayabhasanas are what constitutes the will. So in other words, whatever actions we do in accordance with our own will or under the sway of our vasanas are what are called agamya. Uh, the agamya are the actions that bear fruit. The fruit of those actions are not experienced by us immediately. The fruit of whatever actions we do are, are stored for um, uh, for uh, possibly being experienced in future. The fruits of those actions, where the fruits of actions are stored is what is called sanchitta. Sanchitta is a Sanskrit word that means a heap or pile. So it simply means the store of the fruit of past actions that we haven't yet experienced. And from that store of fruit, God selects which fruit we are to experience in this lifetime. So whatever we experience, whatever we are given to experience in this lifetime is the fruit of our past actions, but not just uh, a random selection of fruit, but fruit are selected by God in such a way that will be most conducive to our um, spiritual development. So what we experience in this lifetime is what is called prarabdha. That is the fruit of our past actions that have been selected by God for us to experience in this lifetime. And whatever we are given to experience is predetermined. As Bhagavan said in the note he wrote for his mother, in the second, third and fourth sentences, he said, whatever is not, what, what, is, what is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. What is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstruction. This is certain. So if we pay close attention to this, in the first of these uh, three sentences, he says, whatever 
uh, is what is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. The very fact that he says in spite of very, any amount of effort, what does that imply? That means that though what is what is not to happen is never going to happen, we are free to want it to happen, and we are free to make effort uh, to make it happen. But however much we want something to happen, and however much we try to make it happen, it will not happen unless it is destined to happen. Likewise, when he says um, in the next sentence, whatever is to happen uh, uh, will not stop in spite of any amount of obstruction. That means what is going to happen is going to happen. We are free to want it not to happen. We are free to try to stop it happening, but we are not free to stop it. It is going to happen. However much we try to stop it, it is going to happen. So that means whatever we are given to experience, that is the, the fruit of our past action is what we, if we do a good action, the, the, the result of a good action is a good fruit. The result of a bad action is bad fruit. So the good fruit means some pleasant experience will be given to us. Bad fruit means uh, a bad, ex uh, unpleasant experience will be given to us. So uh, whatever we experience is the fruit of our past actions, and that is predetermined. So we have no freedom to change anything that we are destined to experience. So whatever is going to happen is going to happen. However, this does not mean that we are not free to want something else to happen or to, to try to make it happen. Um, in the, the, what, I, uh, what I explain now is the th second, third and fourth sentences of that note that Bhagavan wrote to his mother. In the first sentence, he says, that literally means according to the prarabdha, or, or sorry, in accordance with the prarabdha of each one, he who is for that, being there, there, will cause to act, or literally will cause to dance. What that means is, in accordance with our prarabdha, he who is for that, that means God or Guru, being there, there implies being in each place. And uh, more deeply, being in the heart of each one of us will make us act. That doesn't mean that all the actions we do are actions we're made to do by God. Because if all the actions we do are actions we were made to do by God, then we are not the doer. He is the doer. So he should experience the fruit. Why should we experience the fruit of actions, but we are not the doer, but we are compelled, uh, but, but, but are done under, uh, uh, according to the will of God, not according to our will. So the law of karma would make no sense at all if we deny freedom of will and deny freedom of action. That is, firstly, we have freedom of will. We are free to want whatever we want. Secondly, we are free to act on that. We are free to act in accordance with that. In uh, Nana, in several places, Bhagavan talks about uh, the mind, of, about acting under the sway of vasanas. For example, in the eighth paragraph, 
when he's talking about pranayama, he says, uh, when the when the breath is uh, is restrained, the um, the mind is also restrained, and when the breath comes out, the mind will also come out and wander under the sway of its vasanas. When he said the mind will wander under the sway of its vasanas, that means the mind is acting under the sway of its vasanas. So it, it, we can't say every action of the mind is predetermined because then it would be meaningless to say that the mind is acting under the sway of its vasanas. And in the 19th paragraph of Nana, when Bhagavan, Bhagavan says there are not two minds, a good mind and a bad mind, um, it is vasanas that are two kinds, subhavasanas and asubhavasanas. Subhavasanas means agreeable vasanas, asubhavasana means disagreeable vasanas. And he uh, then goes on to say, when the mind is under the sway of subhavasanas, it is called a good mind. When it's under the sway of asubhavasanas, it's called a bad mind. That implies that the actions we do by mind, speech, and body, the, the actions that determine, that is our behavior, in other words, is it, we, is determined by our, our vasanas. It's under the sway of vasanas that we do good or bad actions. Um, so there is, it, um, there is no, I mean, it, it is completely unjustified to come to the conclusion that Bhagavan taught there is no freedom of will. As I say, in talks in so many places, he explicitly says there's freedom of will. Um, in uh, verse 19 of, of Uladu Napadu, he says, um, he doesn't use the term free, uh, free will, he uses the term will. Will means, uh, the term he uses for will in this context is mati. He talks about vidi mati. Vidi means fate, mati means, in this context, means will. And he says, only for those who do not have discernment of the fate of, sorry, of the root of fate and will is their dispute about which prevails, fate or will. So the very fact he talks about the root of fate and will implies he's, 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 there is fate and there is will. But, and the, but the dispute about it, about which prevails, arises only for those who do not understand the root of fate and will. What is the root of fate and will? The root of fate and will is ego. It is ego who has a will, who has vasanas and likes and dislikes and so on, and you consequently acts accordingly and uh, thereby generates fruit, which it later experiences in the form of fate. Um, and then Bhagavan goes on to say, those who have known them, uh, themselves, who is the one origin for fate and will, when he said those who have known themselves, what he implies is those who have known the reality of ego, who is the one origin for fate and will, that is, without ego, there's neither fate nor will, have discarded them. That is, when we know ourselves as we actually are, when we know the reality of ego, ego will cease to exist. And when ego ceases to exist, fate and will will cease to exist along with them. And in verse 38 of Urdhunapadu, he says, um, Vine mudal namayin, vile payan tui poem. If we are the doer of action, we will experience the resulting fruit. 
we can from this we can infer that if we experience the resulting fruit we we have a doer of action we only experience the fruit of our actions so long as we experience ourselves as a doer of actions um and he then goes on to say investigating who is the doer of action when one knows oneself that implies when we know ourselves by investigating who am i the doer of action doership will depart and all the three karmas will slip off this is the state of liberation which is eternal uh why does doership depart when we know ourselves that means knowing ourselves as we actually are that is the doer of action is ego how is ego the doer of action that is when we rise as ego we always identify ourselves as the body and what bhagavan means by the body when he says ego is the false awareness i am this body what he means by the body is not just the physical body he means all the five sheaths the physical body the the um the life that animates it or the prana the mind the intellect and the will these are what are called the five sheaths so we we when we rise as ego we experience ourselves as these five sheaths but three instruments of action are mind speech and body because we experience the mind speech and body as ourselves whatever actions are done by mind speech or body are experienced by us as actions done by us i am i am thinking i am talking i am sitting i am standing i am walking whatever we identify because we identify ourselves with these instruments of action we identify ourselves with the actions that these instruments do so the sense of doership is the very nature of ego and along with that sense of doership comes a sense of experiencership so we we not only uh do the actions we experience the fruit until we know what we actually are when we know what we actually are ego is thereby annihilated so the, um do when ego is annihilated both doership and experiencership will depart and therefore all three karmas uh agamya sanchita and prarabdha all will cease to exist or as he puts it here they will slip off so um it this this it, it this is one of the fundamental principle i mean the, the 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 this law of karma is one of the fundamental teachings of vedanta one of the fundamental is not the deepest of the principles of bhagavan's teaching but it's a very important principle of bhagavan's teachings this uh, law of karma and we are bound by karma so long as we rise as ego if we want to free ourselves from all the three karmas we need to free ourselves from ego because ego is the doer of actions and the experiencer of the fruit of actions as he makes clear in that verse um so when bhagavan says everything is predetermined he means all that we are to experience is predetermined because it's in accordance with prarabdha and prarabdha is predetermined it doesn't mean but everything we do is predetermined because if everything we were doing were predetermined then we we wouldn't be the doer of the action something some uh um if for example if there's a if a 
a person is a careless driver or if they're drunk or something and they have an accident, who goes to court and has to face the punishment? It is the driver of the car, not the car. You don't, the car isn't, um, isn't uh, fined or put in prison or something for, for going carelessly. The driver is, is, the, is the one who is held responsible. So if all the actions we do are predetermined by God, that means God is the doer of all the actions, then why should we experience the resulting fruit? So, as Bhagavan said, if we have a doer of action, we will experience the resulting fruit. The fact that we are experiencing the fruit means we have a doer of action. We, that, we, that is, we, we are doer of action in the sense that we identify ourselves as the mind, speech, and body and act in accordance with our own vasanas, our own will. So, this is the, this is the fundamental principle of the law of karma. So, when Bhagavan says in verse 19, he, when he refers to this vidimati bellum vivadam, the dispute as to which prevails, fate or will, he, he said this is only for those who, don't un, who do not have discernment, who don't have viveka of the root of fate and will. What does he imply by this? That is, it, but many of us assume that there's a conflict between the idea of fate and will. Either we have freedom of will or we are bound by fate. There is actually no contradiction because fate or prarabdha determines what we are to experience. Our will determines what we want to experience and what we try to experience. We are free to want to experience anything. We are free to try to experience anything, but we are not free to experience anything. What we are to experience is determined by prarabdha. What we want to experience and what we try to experience is in accordance with our own will. So there is no conflict between predetermination and will. The two go, I mean, the, the whatever is predetermined is the fruit of our past actions, the past actions that we've done in accordance with our will. So without freedom of will, we would not be the doer of actions and therefore we would not experience the resulting fruit. So um, this is why we shouldn't just take individual statements out of context and 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 uh, jump to conclusions like, oh, Bhagavan has said everything is predetermined, therefore there is no will. That is not what Bhagavan meant. If we understand the law of karma correctly, there is no conflict between the fact that we do have freedom of will, and we consequently we have freedom of action, but we don't have freedom to change what is predetermined. What is predetermined is predetermined. So we, however much we may want to experience something, however much we may try to experience it, we cannot experience it unless it is already allotted to us in, in, according to our prarabdha. In other words, unless it is predetermined, we cannot experience it. If it is predetermined, however much we may want to avoid it, however much we may try to avoid it, we cannot avoid it because it's predetermined. Or if we want to avoid experiencing what's predetermined, there is only one way. 
so long as we rise as ego, we have to experience whatever is predetermined. If we want to avoid experiencing our prarabdha, the only way is annihilation of ego. Only when ego is annihilated will, will we free ourselves from all three karmas, as Bhagavan makes clear in verse 38 of, uh, of um, Uludunapalu and in so many other places also. Um, so I hope that clarifies the, the people who come to the conclusion that because Bhagavan says everything is predetermined, therefore we have no freedom of will or freedom of action. That is not what Bhagavan means. That is whatever, whatever is given to us to experience is predetermined. Whatever we try to experience, that is not predetermined. That's a, we, we have that freedom of will. Um, regarding one of the questions that someone, um, oh yes, this question, according to Vedanta, self has no karma associated with it. In this context, I think what this person means by self is our real nature. What we actually are is, uh, is free of karma, because karma is only for ego. So um, that the person goes on to say, in that sense, if one associates with karma, doesn't belongs to only ego. Yes, karma and the fruit of karma are all only for ego. For our real nature, our real nature is ever untouched by karma. And then the person goes on to say, so as Bhagavad Gita, karma is the creative urge of self to express itself. I don't know which passage of the Bhagavad Gita is referred to here, or what actually is said in the original, but I think this is a misinterpretation. Our real nature has no creative urge. Our re the nature of what we actually are, namely Brahman or Atmaswarupa, has no creative urge. Its nature is just being. The, crea the, the creative power is Maya, which is what is otherwise called ego. So it is ego that, um, but uh, is the root of uh, karma and the fruit of karma. Um, uh, and oh, and someone else asked, um, uh, uh, I need clarification regarding Bhagavan's teachings. If all the happenings are according to the design of God, commission of a sin is also one's destiny, question mark. No, it is not. If we commit a sin, if we are acting under the sway of our vasanas, so we are responsible, and so we have to experience the fruit of that. Um, and there was just one other uh, question someone asked related to this, which is not so directly related to this, but it's an important point to clarify. Someone else asked in a recent comment, um, is it because of prarabdha karma but some of us, within brackets, ego, are inclined to spiritual seeking and others are not. Does prarabdha incline us to spiritual growth? No. Prarabdha is the fruit of our past actions that we are given to experience in this lifetime. What inclines us to spiritual growth is our vasanas. Uh, more specifically, 
But the actual, the inclination to grow spiritually is what is called satvasana. That is the inclination not to do anything, but the inclination just to be. So that the that um, the all uh, all the effort we make to follow the spiritual path is effort we are making in accordance with our will. This is why Bhagavan often used to say. Bhakti is the mother of jnana. Bhakti means love, and love is obviously our will. So we must have great love to know and to be what we actually are. Then only we will know and be what we actually are. So when he says uh, bhakti is the mother of jnana, jnana means knowing and being what we actually are. Bhakti means the love to know and to be what we actually are. So without that love, we will not be. So the love is not according to prarabdha. The love is according to our will. Um, however, the prarabdha is allotted, as I said earlier, prarabdha is allotted by God or Guru. God and Guru actually are one and the same. Um, so uh, whether we call it God or Guru, that which allots the fruit of our action, it does so in such a way that will be most conducive to our spiritual growth. So prarabdha can, uh, is indirectly uh, helping us, but how we prarabdha is just what we are given to experience. How we respond to that, what we are given to experience, determines whether we are growing spiritually or not. If we are constantly struggling against prarabdha, trying to experience things that we're not destined to experience, and trying to avoid experiencing what we are destined to experience, we are not growing spiritually. We grow spiritually by accepting that whatever we are given to experience, it is the sweet will of God, because it is God who has allotted the prarabdha. So as Bhagavan often said, whether you call it prarabdha or you call it the will of God, it is the same thing. So. If, if we are, if we want to grow spiritually, we need to surrender ourselves. We need to joyfully accept whatever may be given to us by uh, in accordance with prarabdha. We all know prarabdha is a mixed bag. We all experience pleasant things. We all experience unpleasant things. But whether whether we find what we are given to experience pleasant or unpleasant, it is all given to us by God for our own spiritual growth. So we need to joyfully accept whatever happens. And we shouldn't be constantly trying to experience this or experiencing that, because it's already determined by prarabdha. So trying to achieve this or to achieve that outwardly in life is futile. This is why Bhagavan taught us this, uh, the law of karma as he taught it. And because if we understand the law of karma as Bhagavan taught us, we will understand that whatever we want and whatever we try, we are free to want and we are free to try, but we are not free to change what is, what is destined to happen. So what is destined to happen is most certainly going to happen. What is not destined to happen is most certainly not going to happen. So any effort we make outwardly to achieve this or that, of the outward achievements in life, they're all futile because whatever we are to experience, we're going to experience anyway, whether we try to experience it or not. Whatever we're not going to experience, we're not going to experience. Uh, so we, making effort 
outwardly to achieve this or that in life is futile. The only, as Bhagavan often said, the only correct use of our freedom of will is to turn within, uh, to know, to investigate and know what we actually are. Because by investigating and knowing what we actually are, we are thereby surrendering ourselves completely. And when we surrender ourselves completely, ego is thereby dissolved. And what remains is what alone actually exists, the one, what we always actually are. That's why Bhagavan ends verse 38 of Voluna by saying, this is liberation which is eternal. That is, we are eternally free. We only seem to be bound because we've risen as ego. But since, since we alone are what actually exists, since we are one without a second, our freedom is actually infinite. We, uh, but when we rise as ego, our freedom seems to be limited. It, 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 it's limited because when we limit ourselves, we limit our freedom. Um, what we actually are is infinitely free. Uh, as, but even when we rise as ego, we are bound. But though we are bound, it, it is a, a limitation on our freedom, but not a complete um, we, we don't, free, because freedom is our very nature, we don't lose our freedom when we rise as ego. It's just we do not experience the infinite freedom that, we, that is our own real nature. So we experience freedom, but only a limited freedom. That is because as ego, we have imposed limitations on ourselves. When we rise as ego, we identify ourselves as a body. And thereby we impose limitations on ourselves. So our freedom is limited, but it's net, we are, even when it's limited, we still are free. So we are always free to turn within. That's another important thing Bhagavan often used to say. Bhagavan said, prarabdha, that is what's predetermined, affects only the outward going mind. It can never obstruct us turning within. So we always have freedom to turn within. And the only wise use of our freedom is to turn within and thereby surrender ourselves completely. That is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. If we had no such freedom, if we had no freedom to love to turn within, if we had no freedom to try to turn within, then what's the point of Bhagavan's teachings? It becomes meaningless. So we, we shouldn't take isolated statements take them out of context and jump to our jump to conclusions without considering Bhagavan's teachings as a whole. Before I end this subject, one more thing I wanted to add on this. Um, many people, many philosophers deny that there is freedom of, well, they deny that there is free will. Um, as I say, what they mean by free will is often freedom of action. But Bhagavan was much more precise in what he talked about. Bhagavan spoke about freedom of will and freedom of action. He often spoke about them together because the two are very closely associated. But sometimes he would talk about them individually, Ichya Swatantra and Kriya Swatantra, freedom of will and freedom of action. In what sense is our will free? Well, in one sense, we can say our will is infinitely free because we all we are free to want whatever we want. The only limitation on our freedom of will is that we want many different things. That is, 
but but our will consists at the most fundamental level it consists of vasanas vasanas are the uh, inclinations they are the seeds that give rise to likes dislikes desires attachments and so on so at its most fundamental level the will consists of vasanas and vasanas pull us in many different directions as bhagavan says in the 10th paragraph of of nana though vishaya vasanas uh, which come from time immemorial that is tondru tottu varakindra that means from the very beginning of time these vasanas come uh, though they rise in countless numbers like ocean waves so everything we are experiencing is the rising of our vasanas the sprouting of our vasanas so all mental activity is a, is the play of vasanas the whole all perceptions are the play of vasanas so vasanas are pulling us in many different directions often we have conflicting desires for just to give a simple example if someone is habituated to smoking but if they want to give up smoking because they know smoking is bad for their health one inclination on one side they have an inclination to smoke on the other side they have an inclination to not to smoke and so these two inclinations are in conflict so they're pulling in different directions so we this is just one example but if we if we ex, if we closely examine our own inclinations we will find we have inclinations pulling us in many different directions often completely opposite directions so because of the conflict of our among our different vasana vasana pulling us in different directions our will seems to be um seems to be limited sometimes people ask about free, uh, about willpower what does willpower mean all willpower means is that we we strongly want one particular thing and we want that thing so strongly we're ready to sacrifice everything else that is willpower um but that just means that we're focusing all our all our desire on one thing um in the spiritual path we are trying to replace the vishaya vasanas that's the inclinations to go outwards to experience vishayas objects or phenomena we are trying to replace that with sat vasana the inclination to go within and to subside back into our being and thereby be as we actually are so that requires great willpower to 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 give up all the uh, all the liking to go outwards and to develop this love to turn within to sink back into our heart so um in practice where does the freedom of will lie when we have vasanas pulling us in so many different directions are we bound by vasanas no vasanas are inclinations so we are free to follow our inclinations or not to follow them and when inclinations are pulling us in different directions we have the freedom whether to follow this inclination or that inclination so the freedom of will lies in our freedom to allow ourselves to be swayed or not swayed by any particular vasana so how to use our freedom of will wisely 
we use the correct use of our freedom of will is to turn our attention within. When we turn our attention within, to the extent our attention is turned within, to that extent we are not allowing ourselves to be swayed by the Vishaya Vasanas. And the nature of Vasanas, Vasanas have no strength of their own. They're just our own inclination. So they've got no strength of, our, of their own. Whatever strength Vasanas seem to have, a strength they derive from us. So if we allow ourselves to be swayed by a particular Vasana, we are thereby strengthening that vasana. So if, if uh, a smoker keeps on succumbing to that inclination to smoke, they're thereby strengthening the, the inclination to smoke. But if they have a strong determination, no, I want to give up smoking, and they refuse to, uh, um, to be swayed by that inclination to smoke and instead allow themselves to be swayed by the inclination not to smoke, that inclination not to smoke will grow stronger and the inclination to smoke will grow weaker. So this is how we have freedom to overcome our vasanas. We can replace the bad vasanas with better vasanas. But all Vishaya vasanas, though some Vishaya vasanas are better than others, they're all taking our attention away from ourselves. So in the final analysis, the only good vasana is sat vasana, the inclination to go back within. So if we want to, if we want to use our freedom of will wisely, we will not allow ourselves to be swayed by our Vishaya vasanas. We'll only allow ourselves to be swayed by the sat vasana. In other words, we'll hold on firmly to self-attentiveness, not allowing our attention to go out towards anything else. <laughs> that is the correct use of our freedom of will. And so freedom of will is absolutely it, it's a fundamental principle of Bhagavan's teachings. If we if you deny freedom of will, then Bhagavan's teachings and all spiritual teachings and all, all moral teachings become meaningless. So the, it's a very, very wrong conclusion to come to. Just because Bhagavan said everything is predetermined, but we thereby it would be wrong on our part to conclude, oh, therefore I have no freedom of will. No. We, Whatever is given to us to experience is predetermined. And whatever we need to do in order to, um, to, uh, to uh, experience what we are destined to experience will be made to do. That doesn't mean all the actions we do we're made to do. For, consider the examples that Devaraja Mudliya asked Bhagavan. Bhagavan, if, if I pick up this fan and fan myself, is that predetermined? Bhagavan said, yes. Why? Because enjoying the cool breeze of the fan is predetermined. So we have, we, because that is predetermined, we have to pick up the fan and fan ourselves. Um, it's uh, another example, but it's sometimes given. If I even to drink, a, if I pick up a glass of water and drink it, yes, it, of course that's predetermined because since drinking the water is predetermined, you're picking up the glass to drink the water is also predetermined. But this doesn't mean that all the actions we do are predetermined, nor does it mean that we, but uh, just because we do an action is predetermined doesn't mean we are absolved of responsibility for that action, because many actions 
but we are made to do by God in accordance with destiny, we are also made to do by our vasanas. An example I give of this, I often give of this, is supposing it's our destiny to be a doctor. We may have many reasons for wanting to be a doctor, but anyway, it's our destiny to be a doctor. Even if we don't want to be a doctor, we cannot avoid being a doctor. So we have to, in order to become a doctor, we have to study, we have to pass exams, and we have to get the professional certification, and we actually have to work as a doctor, um, uh, because that's our destiny. But most people who become doctors want to become doctors. They may want to become doctors for different reasons. Some people may want to become doctors. They may be, have very altruistic motivation. They may want to help alleviate suffering and to be, uh, to be able to uh, uh, help people who are sick. So their reason for wanting to be a doctor it may be altruistic. It may be totally selfish. They may think, oh, if I'm a doctor, that's a, a high prestige. It's got, there's a social prestige to being a doctor. I'll, I can also earn a lot of money as a doctor if I go into private practice. Um, so there may be different motives, but most people, the vast majority of people who end up becoming doctors, become doctors because they want to become doctors. They, they also become doctors because it's their destiny. They couldn't become doctor. However much someone may want to become a doctor, if it's not their destiny, they will not become a doctor. But if it's their destiny to become a doctor, in the vast majority of cases, they also want to become doctors. So the actions they do to become doctors are driven, uh, actions they are made to do by God in accordance with their prarabdha, they're also actions that they're simultaneously made to, they're simultaneously doing under the sway of their vishaya vasanas. So we are, we are responsible for actions to the extent to which we are acting under the sway of our vasanas. Whether or not that action is an action we are made to do by God, that is not, that, that is not relevant to whether that action, whether we, we, whether we have a moral responsibility for that action. So, um, when someone asks if we co commit a sin, is it is um, what was the question? Um, uh, commission of a sin is also one's destiny. It may be our destiny to do that action, but if we do that action because we want to do it. If it, if, if, supposing it is my destiny to be born in the, in the, in a mafia family and to be a, a lifelong criminal, um, that may be my destiny, but that doesn't mean absolve me of all the, the, the wrongs I do. If I go and rob banks or shoot people or do bad things, I am morally responsible for that because I'm doing those actions not only because it's my destiny, but also because I want to do that. I rob the bank because I want the money. So the, 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 the will and fate are very, are very much interlinked. Another thing is, if, a, if it's a person's destiny to be a mafia boss, for example, or to be any type of criminal, or to be, uh, if that is their destiny, why are they allotted that destiny? Will a person of a kind, gentle, uh, loving nature be destined to be a violent criminal? Obviously not. 
But prarabdha that is allotted to us is allotted, is tailor-made to suit us. So whatever prarabdha God gives us is a prarabdha that is suited to our nature. So people who are by nature kind and generous and altruistic and loving, such people will have a prarabdha that is suited to that nature. A person who is violent, selfish, narcissistic, greedy, um, cruel, they will have a destiny which is suited to that nature. So the, 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 but what is predetermined is the fruit of our past actions that has been allotted to us by God. God allots those fruit in such a way that will be most conducive to our spiritual development. So it is, it's well matched to the particular vasanas we have. Uh, God will, will not uh, give us a destiny to be a violent criminal if we if we are of a very kind and gentle nature. It just wouldn't, but it wouldn't fit. So God will not do. So the prarabdha is made to suit us. So if we have a prarabdha to be a uh, to be uh, a kind altruistic person, that is that prarabdha is given to us because such is our nature. So I hope this um, helps to clarify some of these um, some of these uh, questions that people raise on this subject. Shalini, last time someone had raised a question about they wanted to ask some question on this subject. Is that person here now, and do they have do they still want to answer the, ask the question? Um. Sort of in the chat box, I have three questions on uh, on, on free will and karma. Okay, okay. let's deal with those first, and then we can deal okay. with the other so, um, And then uh, there are some questions which came by email, and uh, there are other questions. So mm. let me just see this. Okay, so quite a lot of questions today. Okay. Um, so the first one is that in Talk Twenty Eight, Bhagwan gives what seems to be practical advice with regard to the free will destiny problem, open quotation. God's will for the prescribed course of events is a good solution of the free will problem. If the mind is restless on account of a sense of the imperfect and unsatisfactory character of what befalls us, or what is committed or omitted by us, then it is wise to drop the sense of responsibility and free will by regarding ourselves as the ordained instruments of the all-wise and all-powerful to do and suffer as he pleases. He, he carries all burdens and gives us peace. Close quotation marks. Would you please uh, speak to this? Yes, what Bhagavan is basically saying here we need to surrender ourselves. If we surrender ourselves, surrendering ourselves implies surrendering our will. So whatever may happen, um, it is according to the will of God. So if we give up our will, we will happily accept that whatever happens is according to his will. So what Bhagavan is implying here is if we want to be free of this, of this, uh, of 
the, the, the trouble caused by the freedom of will, we need to surrender our freedom of will to God. In other words, we need to surrender. In, in order to surrender our freedom of will, we need to surrender ourselves. Because as Bhagavan says elsewhere in talks, in another passage, Bhagavan said, so long as there is individuality, so long there is fate and, and free will. So the individuality means ego. So long as there's ego, ego has freedom of will, and it also experiences the, the, the fate, which is the fruit of its past misuse of its free will. So the wise course is to, get, is to surrender our free will. But we cannot surrender our freedom of will without sur surrendering ourselves, the one who has the freedom of will. Because so long as there's ego, that ego has freedom of will. So we have to surrender ego. If we surrender ego, whatever happens, it's all his will. So that's why he says, to do and suffer as he pleases. So if we surrender ourselves completely, if we don't rise as ego, whatever actions may be done by mind, speech, or body will only be actions that he makes us do. Because if we don't rise as ego, then we have, we're not exercising our freedom of will. And therefore, whatever action may be done by mind, speech, or body, are actions he makes us do. And whatever may be, we may be given to experience, it's his, he has given us to experience it, so we joyfully accept it as his will. That's why he says to do and suffer as he pleases. Suffer here means to experience. Whatever he gives us to experience, that is his will. We joyfully accept it. As Bhagavan sings in, um, in verse 2 of Aranatya Patikam, Ninishtam enishtam, your will is my will. Imbadaku, that is happiness for me. So whatever you will, you do whatever you will. I'm, I'm, I will accept it happily. That should be the attitude. That is surrendering our will to the will of God. That is how we free ourselves from this uh, the burden of free will. Because free will is actually a burden. Because so long as we have free will, we almost invariably misuse it. So the correct way to use our free will is to surrender it back to God. You take care of this. This free will has caused me so much trouble. Through so many countless lives, I've been misusing this free will. This is a very dangerous thing you've given me. Please take it back. Let me surrender myself entirely to you. Whatever you will, that alone is what I will. Your will is my will. Ninishtam enishtam. Imbadaku. That is happiness for me. That is, the, that is the attitude we should have in this spiritual path. And Bhagavan doesn't ask us to deny that we have free will. He asks us to surrender our free will. I hope that's a clear answer to that question. The next question is, it says, Michael, the way you describe free will and destiny brings to mind the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Do you find a similarity? Thank you. Uh, yes, that is the, the sentiment behind this serenity prayer is based upon that understanding. Actually, if we go deeper into it, we don't have freedom to change anything, according to Bhagavan. But the 
so long as we have that sense of doership, we will sometimes be prompted to do things, but may seem to change things. But actually, whatever is whatever changes, it changes only according to destiny. So that serenity prayer is a very nice attitude to have. It's a good attitude to have at a certain level, but we need to go deeper than that. We need to recognize that actually we have no freedom to change anything. If we do anything that does seem to change anything, it is only because we were made to do that by God. So the wisdom that is referred to in the serenity prayer, the true wisdom is to surrender ourselves to God and let God decide what can be changed and what can't be changed. So the, the, the ultimate, there's no wisdom higher than complete surrender. That is the ultimate wisdom. So yes, there is a certain, certain parallel, but what Bhagavan is teaching us it goes deeper than the uh, um, serenity prayer. The serenity prayer is a very nice sentiment to have. So long as we have a sense of doership, there are some things it seems possible for us to do. Some things seem impossible for us to do. If we see a hungry person and we have food, it seems possible for us to give that food to that hungry person and alleviate their suffering. But when there are a million people starving in, uh, more than a million people starving in Gaza, can we do anything to change that? Doesn't seem to be possible, unfortunately. Though our heart goes out to all those people who are suffering on both sides of the conflict, what can we do about it? But we can't do anything. So we, 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 uh, we, we have to just keep quiet. I mean, there's nothing else we can do. Much as we are pained to see all these terrible things that happen in the world, this is the nature of the world. Uh, Michael, there's a question on uh, free will and karma from Titi. Yes. <clears throat> Hi, Michael. Hi. Uh, yeah, it's my question about this uh, free will. Uh, it's, for me, it's uh, confusing, this term. Uh, I'm saying why. Because uh, in any circumstance, I, cho uh, I choose, uh, I choose uh, what, is the, what is best for me what is good for me nature to start to be happy and yeah. what is yeah. the, what is the meaning what is the what make what is the meaning of this freedom because uh, if i choose uh, to be happy in any circumstance i don't understand what what is the meaning for this freedom because in also in christianity they say to choose between evil and evil and good but for me only an insane person can choose uh, uh, i don't know to Evil, uh, evil part, you know, eternal hell or something like that is absurd for me. So if I, if I, if I'm condemned mm -hmm. to choose uh, happiness, what, what is the purpose for, uh, for freedom? Right. Okay. Love for happiness is our very nature, as Bhagavan makes clear in the first paragraph of Nana. We all love to be happy, but we all seek happiness in different ways. Uh, but criminal, the murderer, the tyrant, the uh, very evil people, they're also seeking happiness. The saint is also seeking happiness, but they seek it in different ways. So when we have a freedom, we need to use that freedom wisely. So how do we go about, we all love to be happy, but how do we go about finding that happiness? Will I be happy if I, if I, um, 
if I um, if I become a big businessman, exploit so many people and amass a vast amount of wealth. Some people believe that's a way to happiness, and so they live their life accordingly. Other people are generous by nature. Whatever they have, they're happy to share with others because that's what gives them happiness. So it's according to the purity of our mind, we decide which actions, which course of actions will make us happy and which course of actions will not make us happy. For a person of a kind, generous nature, it pains them to, it pains such a person to see others suffering. So they'll do all they can to alleviate the suffering of others because that alleviates their own suffering on seeing that person suffering. For a person who is who is totally unconcerned about others, only con is concerned about their own um, about themselves, they will they will um, do they won't be concerned about they don't mind exploiting others. They don't mind however much others suffer, so long as I get what I want. That's all that matters to me. So, it's the the purity of our mind determines where we seek happiness. The purer our mind is, the more we will understand what Bhagavan teaches, but happiness doesn't lie in external things. Happiness doesn't lie in action. Happiness lies within. Happiness lies in just being as we actually are. I don't know if that, um, to what so, extent that answers your question. So even when I'm deluded, would I, I think that, uh, for example, uh, okay, if I think that I'm happy going outside and inside, my le that level, uh, in that level, I think I think that, uh, yeah, this is my level of understanding yeah, yeah. happiness. Yeah, that, so that is ultimately in many circumstances. Yeah, ultimately, I do all the best for me. Yes, yes, but it's but the very evil people who people who do terrible things the Hitlers and Stalins and such people in the, of this world, why are they doing that? Because they're deeply deluded. They think they will get happiness by persecuting other people. And I, I mean, that's according to their level of, uh, I mean, that shows how clouded their mind is. And because they do such actions, they have to experience the consequences of those actions. So in the spiritual path, one of the aims in any spiritual path, or any even a religious path, the aim is purifying our mind, getting a purer mind. A purer mind means a clearer mind. So the purer our mind, the more we will be inclined to do good actions rather than bad actions. But all this is, is at a certain level. When we come to Bhagavan's teachings, we're going deeper than this. Bhagavan isn't so much concerned about action, he's concerned about not rising to do any action at all. That rather than discriminating, this is a good action, that is a bad action, rather than discriminating like that, the best, the best action is not acting at all. That best action is not to rise as ego. Because if we rise as ego, we'll be doing action. Some actions will be good, some actions will be bad. If we've got a pure mind, we will tend to do more good actions and less bad actions. If we've got a bad, if we've got an impure mind, we'll tend to do more bad actions, less good actions. But ultimately, if we want to put an end to this doing, we have to return to our 
real state, which is the state of just being. In the state of just being, that is the state in which we do not rise as ego, there is no doing at all. So all these problems are solved. So long as we rise as yeah. ego, karma is a problem. Our will, our freedom of will is a problem. Yes, 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 because it's, yeah, this freedom. Can I, so can I? That is why become, yeah. what Bhagavan recommends is that we surrender this freedom of will by ceasing to rise as ego. Yes, you were about to say something else? In Guru Vachakukavai, if I remember correctly, there is a verse in which Bhagavan says, the ending of the freedom of the individual is the attainment of the true freedom of Brahman. That is, so long as we rise as ego, to the extent to which this ego is free, we are thereby binding ourselves to limitations. So if we give up this individual freedom, we will attain the real freedom, the infinite freedom that is our own real nature. That is, the very rising of ego is itself bondage. It's a limitation on our freedom. Can I ask another question? Which yeah, yes. Related to the can I can I uh, can I do self investigation in a dreaming state? Yes. Yes. So can I be a little? Can I go? Can I forever? So 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 suicide forever in 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 in, 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 dream, in dreaming state. That is the. In both waking and dream, we rise as ego. And the nature of ego is to go outwards, to attend to things other than itself. But that freedom to attend to ourself is possible in both states. But ideally, we should be attending only to ourselves throughout waking and throughout dream. But in order to attend to ourselves without a break requires all-consuming love. Do we have sufficient love to attend to ourselves? If we have sufficient love to, <laughs> to attend to ourselves, that self-attentiveness will continue throughout waking and dream. But most of us, we still have too much liking to experience other things. So though we want to attend to ourselves, our wanting to attend to other things is stronger. So we keep on letting go of this self-attentiveness and going outwards. That is why patient and persistent practice is necessary. The more we practice trying to be self-attentive, trying to, and by being self-attentive, we're not allowing our mind to go outwards. So by practice, we are strengthening the love to be self-attentive and weakening the desire to attend to anything else.
herein lies the efficacy of practice. That's why Bhagavan emphasized there's no way around it. Practice is absolutely essential in this path. But rather than worrying about attending to ourselves in dream, let's not worry about that. Let's not worry about attending to ourselves after five minutes. There's only one moment when we can attend to ourselves, and that is the present moment. So we should focus on attending to ourselves in the present moment. If we do so, since every moment when it occurs is present, we will always be attending to ourselves. So let's not think about, can I attend to myself in a dream? Can I attend to myself when I go home from work this evening or whatever? Here and now we need to attend to ourselves. Such single-mindedness we need to have to go deep in this path. If you have so much love to attend to yourself here and now, you will find you will continue attending to yourself even in dream. It's all a matter of love. And that love is cultivated by practice. The more we practice, the more we try to hold on to ourselves, the more the love to hold on to ourselves will, uh, will uh, uh, grow strong. Yes. Yes, because it's absurd. Yeah, it's absurd. Yeah, I, 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 I'm going back to that idea of which yeah. made made me to to detach because they say they're saying that it consciously choose to go in eternal hell. For me, it's, it's like it's not doesn't make sense for me. Only an insane people, man can do this. You know, yeah, you yes. are not free in that case. Yes. Yeah. And when when yeah. are you free? You choose only the the the. The best thing for you, only, yes. only. And the best thing for us is being self-attentive. But that is surrendering our will to the will of, of Bhagavan, the will of God. Yes. Okay. Thank you. All right, then. Uh, Michael, we have about four or five questions on, actually uh, five, on free will and karma of different kinds. Uh, we. Uh, but a lot of these questions have come later. There are questions which have been sent by email and at the beginning, which don't necessarily have to do with free will and karma. How would you like to? Um, okay, let's try and do deal with the questions on uh, uh, free will and karma because this, I think most of the questions I should have answered already, but if there's any further points so. but need clarification, so I hope it won't take too long now. Yes, because I'm more or less I'm going to be repeating what I said. Yes, but, but it may still be useful because people may ra still raise questions, but their particular points of clarification may be useful. Should I ask uh, more than one question? Uh, they're all very similar. They're way. all very similar, perhaps. Yeah, well, yes. well, 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 let me start yeah. with this one. It's a bit, it's a bit different. Um, so this question is. Uh, it, yeah, it says, uh, in my investigations into theories of karma, what I understand is it is just an explanation of why things are happening. If my conclusion is correct, the higher teaching on karma, or what it really means, is that it is your doing, and everything is your doing. And that's why, um, and 
And that's why there is a need to separate karma into three entities like prarabdha, sanchitta, and, and agama. Is this right? This is a question. I don't understand how this life is only prarabdha and there is no place for things to unfold depending on our agamiya in this lifetime. Agama. Yeah. Yeah, Agama. Uh, um, can you explain a bit more? Thank you. That is, agamya is the actions we do in accordance with our freedom of will. That is, the actions we do under the sway of our vasanas. Um, those agamya actions cannot change prarabdha. That is, our will determines what we want to experience, what we try to experience. So it's the will that gives rise to our doing agamya. But prarabdha determines what we are to experience. That cannot be changed. So we, a certain prarabdha has been allotted to each one of us. We cannot, nothing we can do in this life can change that. Even an, even an tiniest iota, what is destined to happen is going to happen, whether we like it or not. However, where the freedom lies, we are free to want to, uh, certain things or not to want. But however much we want it or don't want it, what is going to happen is going to happen. What is not going to happen is not going to happen. And the freedom of will leads to freedom of action. Because I want to, um, because I want to say, um, supposing my ambition in life is to become very, very rich. Because I want to become very rich, I constantly making effort to become very rich. But if it's my destiny to be never rich, to be always poor, however much I want to be rich, however much I, I try to be rich, I cannot be rich. So, prarabdha determines what is actually to happen. But our freedom of will and action determines what we want to happen and what we try to make happen. So there's actually no conflict between them. It seems to be a conflict from the point of a view of a person who has a very strong liking for this or that, or this, this destiny is stopping me getting what I want. So that seems to be a conflict. But actually, if you, if you step back and analyze it very carefully, prarabdha determines what is to happen. Freedom of will and freedom of action determines what we want to happen and what we try to make happen. So, prarabdha cannot stop us wanting anything. It cannot stop us trying. Uh, likewise, our freedom of will and action cannot change what is destined to happen. So they're two different domains. The domain of what is actually to happen is determined by prarabdha. The domain of what we want to happen and what we try to make happen is determined by our freedom of will and our freedom of action. It's very, very simple if we understand it clearly. And regarding the other question about it, um, it, it wasn't very clear to me, but the, <clears throat> though we talk of three karmas, agamya, sanchita, and prarabdha, truly speaking, there's only one karma, that is the agamya. The sanchita and the prarabdha are not, though they are referred to 
as uh, karma, they are what they actually are are the fruit of karma, the karma pala. So th that is what we are to experience as a result of the actions that we've done. So, so long as we rise as ego, we have a will of our own. And under the sway of that will, we are doing agamya. Because of the agamya, whatever agamya we do has, a, has fruit. So every action we do you know, under the sway of our vasanas has a certain fruit. That fruit gets stored in sanchitta and may or may not in some future birth be allotted by God. So what is the appropriate fruit for each action? And when, where, and how that fruit should be, when, where, and how, and if that fruit should be experienced is entirely in the hands of God. That's why Bhagavan begins Upadesh Undia, Karmam Payandaral Kartanadanayal. Karma giving fruit is in accordance with God's uh, ordainment. God's, so God, has, God is the one who decides which action should, uh, which fruit is appropriate for which action, and when, where, how, and if we should experience that. That is why it is said in Gita, you have the right to the action, not to the fruit thereof. That is, we can do whatever action we want, but once we've done that action, it's out of our hands. If you shoot an arrow, you, before you shoot the arrow, you can uh, point the arrow in any direction. Once you've released the arrow, it's no longer in your hands. What that arrow is going to hit, is, is you, 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 it's no longer in your hands. It may hit what you want it to hit, or a wind may come and divert it, and it may hit something else. So we need to be this this freedom of will and freedom of action is a very dangerous weapon we have been given. The wise course of action is to use that freedom of will and action only to turn within. By turning within, we are thereby surrendering our freedom of will and action, and to God and letting him, because what God wants us to do is to be happy, and happiness lies only in turning within. True happiness, true abiding happiness, eternal happiness lies only within us. Uh, thank you, Michael. I don't know if you can hear me. Yes. Well, uh, actually, uh, my question or what I was uh, writing uh, is that karma basically means that everything is you're doing. That's it. So afterwards, we split the karma into, well, according to this Indian theory, they split in three separate parts, as Agamya, Prarabdha, and Sanchita. Uh, my question really was, like, why do we need to, to split it? Like, it, it makes uh, sense because, if you... Because that is, it's not, it's not just an arbitrary splitting, it's what happened. There are two things. We do things and we experience things. What we experience is the fruit of what we have done in previous lives. Yes, but if, for example, I apply it in, let's say we can try to apply it in a concrete uh, situation. Yes. It, let's say theoretically, a uh, person been raised in a 
troublesome family where yes. everything is based on violence let's say he has a yes. bad bag background and something happens in his life for example uh he was cheated i don't know something happened so, someone did something bad to him yes uh there are a lot of ramifications but uh, to just to stick to one point for example he uh, something bad happened to him he has the freedom to respond either in how he was conditioned in a bad way let's say violence and here i don't understand how the agamia is not uh, influencing what is going on in his life if for example he's to respond violent violently and kill the person and let's say he's going to prison yes so if the prarabda is for him in that instance to go to prison it doesn't matter how he responds either violently or non-violently he will go to prison anyway the, the, well the, um he, he will assuming that, that there's justice which isn't always the case often people go to prison when they are not actually guilty but assuming that he will go to prison only if he does some violent action and he does the violent action he goes to prison and that may be entirely prarabda but when he did that violent action was his own will involved almost certainly it was I'm, he was very angry that. So they the both in that case, both his will and the destiny happened to go hand in hand. But supposing he um so supposing our will is going in a in a different way to the destiny, whatever be uh, whatever we want cannot change what is destined to happen. So though it may seem to us or oh, this person has gone to prison because they did such and such a bad action. Actually, we, because we are seeing only the surface, we are not seeing what underlies all this. Actually, according to Bhagavan, whatever happens in this lifetime is not determined by what we do in this lifetime. It is determined, it is the fruit of actions that we've done in previous lifetimes. It may seem to me, I'm feeling hungry now. So I go and eat a meal, my hunger is satisfied. Therefore, my action of eating the food has satisfied my hunger. It may seem to me, therefore, what I did has produced an immediate result. That's how it seems, but that is not actually how it says. Uh, we couldn't have eaten that food and had our hunger satisfied if that was not already destined to happen. So, so uh, the law of karma, the basic principles are very simple. But how it actually happens in practice, the Krishna says in the Gita, the secret of karma is known to none but me. That is only God can understand all the intricacies of this. We do not concern ourselves about this. Only why did Bhagavan teach us the law of karma? To make us understand that whatever effort we make achieving something externally is futile because whatever is to happen externally is already predetermined so the correct use of our freedom of will is the term within so we shouldn't just take what Bhagavan teaches us we should understand why he teaches what is the did Bhagavan come just to teach the law of karma 
No, he taught the law of karma for a particular purpose. To make us understand that all external efforts are futile. The only worthwhile effort is to turn within and thereby surrender ourselves. Uh, Michael, um, quite a bit of this answer in the middle was quite muffled. I didn't want to interrupt you. Oh. Yeah, oh. But, but, no, but, but at the beginning and at the end, it was fine. Oh, I think okay. it sort of summed it up. But, you know, around the, at the time you were talking about the Gita just before that, uh, oh. and a little bit after that, um, I don't know if you want to repeat or, but uh, am I, I right in understanding that what you're basically saying is that what we experience in this lifetime is the fruit of past karma. Yes. Um, and uh, we will have to undertake some activity, some action to be able to uh, to be able to experience that fruit. Exactly, exactly. And that particular action is in in some sense predetermined because obviously you yes, cannot experience yes. something without doing something to experience it, right? That, there can be yes. no experience without action. However, apart from that, given that we have certain inclinations, we're free to either act or to not act in accordance with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, so if there is an impulse to get angry, we can, for example, uh, try not to be angry. But the best way of, in fact, exercising our, um, our because when we do attention, we're motivated, we intend and we attend to something. So the best way is then to actually practice inward attention and make the object of our intention and our yeah. attention um, inward and let the things go on because Exactly. Um, because only what is going to be the fruit of our karma, which is the experience and what's needed to fulfill that, that will go on by itself. And we exactly. will not be undertaking any other action which is going to create future karma. Exactly, exactly. That's what Bhagavan says in the first sentence, when he says in accordance with the, uh, in the first sentence of a note he wrote to his mother, in accordance with the prarabdha of each one, he who is for that, meaning God or Guru, being there, there will make the act. So we, if it's if it's my destiny to have a a meal today, I can't have that meal unless I put the food in my mouth and chew it and swallow it. So those actions are are, are actions I'm made to do by God in accordance with my destiny. But that doesn't mean that every action I do is in accordance with destiny. It also doesn't mean that just because I do that action in accordance with, or just because God makes me do that action in accordance with destiny, doesn't mean I am absolved of moral responsibility. Because if I'm doing it because I like to eat that food, then I have that, I'm morally responsible for that. So I can't go and, um, and uh, murder someone and say, oh, it was my destiny, it was God's will, God made me murder. Yes, God may have made you murder, but you also wanted to murder, so you have to experience the fruit of that. So, Michael, are you saying that, for example, say, um, there is a fruit of, say, past karma, which for some reason means that, you know, you do have to kill someone. But there will be a context to that killing. And yeah. in that context, you do have the freedom uh, to exercise sufficient willpower or to not want to do that. For example, uh, I mean, it could be, according to the way you are now, it could be something like a battlefield. Yeah. And, uh, one, and uh, one may end up uh, killing, uh, but without any hostility, right? I mean, yeah, this is yeah, part yeah. of the Gita's thing and so on and so forth. Yeah. 
but but the same thing can apply in other situations uh that perhaps harming i mean you may not kill actually um mm. there will be circumstances always for killing it's not as if yeah yeah because for example uh, if we say that uh, it's the past of fruit karma uh, of of past karma then one would have to be a fairly evil kind of person shall we say say if it's a child or you know a family member you hear, you hear about people killing and so on yeah that i mean there has to be a distinction between a killing in a context where you know you can undertake it with hostility or not yeah. and killing in a context where it is not justifiable so you're saying that in those contexts would one still undertake that killing the thing is, that, as I said earlier, the prarabdha that is allotted to each one of us is tailor-made to suit our nature, in other words, to suit our vasanas. But it may happen, good people sometimes get caught up in war. And they sometimes a good person may have to kill in order to protect other innocent people. So that, that is, these things are extremely complex. The ultimate, this is what Krishna said when he said, the secret of karmas is known only to me. We cannot unravel this. We can't, eat, for any individual action, we can't say to what extent it is determined by prarabdha. I mean, it, it, to what extent we were made to do that action in accordance with prarabdha, and to what extent we were made to do it in accordance with our will. We need, uh, and trying to unravel this is, is futile because our attention is going outwards. All actions are external things. What Bhagavan is teaching us is, do not be concerned with action. Go within. Who is the doer of action? That is what we need to investigate. Who is the doer of action? Who is the experiencer of the fruit of action? That is what we need to investigate. So. If we understand this law of karma, it will motivate us not to try to make effort externally, because whatever effort we make externally is, is not going to change the, anything. We will, we will uh, be more and more inclined to make effort to go within, to, un to investigate who am I, the doer of action and the experiencer of the fruit of action. So, um, I mean, in that case, say, for example, someone isn't able to go in very deeply and so on, I mean, despite trying to, then uh, it's important to do good as far as possible. Of course, so long as we're doing that's action. Just, that's we, the moral, we, that's what, yeah. yeah. Of course, so long as we're doing action, we should. But if we are inclined to go within, even if we're not very strongly inclined to go within, even if we have a, a certain inclination to go within that inclination to go within will come to us only when our mind is purified to a certain extent so people who are really inclined to follow the spiritual path will naturally be inclined to act in a good way i think some some of the others are you know, maybe we can deal with them quite quickly mm. coming up to. Um, the next one is God allots prarabdha karmas for the purpose of our own growth or evolution. Would this not mean that complete realization and the attainment of jivan mukta, this birth, is allotted by God? No, no. Uh, but 
Jiva Mukti or liberation is the fruit of the love we have to turn within, the love we have to surrender ourselves. Surrender cannot come according to destiny because the fruit of actions are what we are given to experience. Whether we rush out, whether we allow our mind to rush outwards to enjoy all those things, or whether we have a love to turn within and to surrender ourselves. That is a determined by our our will. It's up to our will. Whether what do we want? Do we want to experience the fruit of karma, or do we want to know what we know to know and to be what we actually are? So it is nothing to do. But that is prarabdha is the fruit of action. Liberation is not the fruit of action. Bhagavan says very clearly in the second verse of Upadeshundia, Vidu Tarile, karma does not give liberation. And in the Sanskrit, he says karma obstructs liberation. So prarabdhi is just the fruit of action. It can therefore never give liberation. Liberation is we we are in order to be liberated, we must have all-consuming love to surrender ourselves completely. And we can surrender ourselves completely only by turning within and thereby subsiding back into the heart. Well, the next question is, how can we say we're free to want whatever we want? If we don't know where such wants come from and how, why we have these wants or got these wants. Okay. And, yes. And how can events be predetermined, but people still be free to choose their actions if the events themselves are predetermined? If we have multiple vasanas, that is inclinations, how is that freedom if our actions are still limited by inclinations which we did not choose to have? Right. Um, that's what I said earlier, that is, in one sense, we have unlimited freedom to want what we want, but our free, what limits our freedom of will is the fact that our will is pulling us in so many different directions, because the elements of our will, the fundamental elements of our will are our vasanas, and our vasanas pull us in different directions. So when our will is pulling us in different directions, our will seems to be limited. That's why we need to make our will one-pointed. We should have one-pointed love to know and to be what we actually are, and thereby to surrender ourselves completely. Um, so, our, our, our freedom, where our wants come from is from vasanas. But that is it. The ones that rise, that appear on the surface of the mind, are the vasanas, right? Are the, are the sprouting of vasanas. Those vasanas come from ourselves. It's we who have those inclinations. But the important thing to understand about vasanas vasanas are inclinations. We are not bound by our inclinations. We can be inclined to do something that we know to be bad. But we don't have to yield to that inclination. So if we if we want to live a good life, we try to avoid uh, um, yielding ourselves or being swayed by bad inclinations. 
This is how the mind is gradually, gradually purified. We, we, because we want to avoid the bad, about doing bad actions, we avoid the We don't allow ourselves to be swayed by those inclinations to do bad actions. Thereby, those inclinations get weaker and weaker, and the inclination to do good action gets stronger and stronger. But we're still in the realm of action. We need to go beyond action. We can go beyond action only by surrender. And surrender is brought about by self-investigation. So we need to, rather than um, trying to do good, uh, uh, better than doing bad action, it's good to do good action. So the inclination to do bad actions, we need to give up first. Ultimately, we need to give up inclinations to do any action whatsoever, because we need to cultivate the love just to be as we actually are, not to rise as an ego to do anything. Um, the next question is similar to what we talked about. I have a question about free will. Supposing X is destined to be murdered, is it possible for someone who is destined to stop themselves from doing that murder? If that happens, what happens to destiny of X? That is why Bhagavan says in the first sentence of the note he wrote to his mother, in accordance with destiny, accordance with Prarabdha, he who has put that will cause us to act. So we will be made to do whatever actions are necessary in order for the prarabdha to unfold. But that doesn't mean that all the actions we do are necessary in accordance with prarabdha. If we don't want, we may have no, it happens in life, but sometimes people are, that is, for instance, in road accidents, sometimes a driver may be a very good person, they may be a very careful driver, but some momentary decision they make leads to an accident in which someone dies. It's not because that person had any intention to do that. So because they had no intention to do that, that may be entirely according to Prarabdha. There may be no agamya involved in that at all. But there still may be some agamya because the reason that they, they made that wrong decision that resulted in the action may have been because they were in a hurry, because maybe they were driving fast because there um, to see an elderly parent who was uh, who was sick, or it, they they may have they. It's it's very hard to separate to what extent our will, and to what extent destiny is involved in each action. But we don't have to worry about this. We can go on and on, um, uh, citing hypothetical cases, but. It's that's not our business. We are not here to determine to what extent each action is prarabdha, is, is in accordance with prarabdha, to what extent it's uh, in accordance with our will. That doesn't matter. What we, Bhagavan has asked us to do one thing and one thing alone, something very, very simple attend to yourself. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, to that extent, we as ego subside. That is what is called surrender. So, to the extent to which we attend to ourselves and thereby surrender ourselves, we are not the doer of action because we are subsiding. We're not rising to do anything. So that's all we need to 
be concerned about. We don't need to be concerned about is this action in accordance with destiny or is it in accordance with my will? To what extent did God make me do this? To what extent did my will make me do this? This is all we, we are concerning ourselves with things which need not concern us. Bhagavan has, has, has clarified the, the law of karma, which is very, very simple. Those actions that we do under the sway of our vasanas are agamya. Agamya bears fruit. But whatever we experience as prarabdha is the fruit of our past agamya. That's all we need to know. We cannot change anything but because whatever we are now experiencing in this life is the fruit of Agamya, but we've done in previous life. So we have no freedom, not even an iota of freedom to change anything whatsoever. That's why Bhagavan always insisted everything is predetermined, meaning everything that is given to us to experience is predetermined. But that doesn't mean that we don't have freedom to want other things or to, to try for other things. We have that freedom, but by, if we use that freedom, we are just creating more fruit. So the best way to use our freedom is to turn within and thereby surrender ourselves. It's as simple as that. There's nothing more we need to know. It's our own mind that is raising more and more questions about this. But this is this actually, all this is going against Bhagavan's teaching. Yes, it's good to get some clarity, to understand Bhagavan's teachings clearly. But by going on and on analyzing these things, we are missing the point of wh why Bhagavan taught this. The sole aim of Bhagavan's teaching is to, whatever Bhagavan taught us, the sole aim is to turn our mind within. So we need to understand this in that context, in, that, in the light of that fundamental uh, principle of Bhagavan's teaching. There's a straightforward question. Um, I have a lot of back problems, which I try to control with exercises, swimming, watching posture, etc. Should I just accept the pain and suffering, which may or may not happen, if I stop my attempts to ease the suffering and prevent things getting worse? Your attempts to, to, to ease the pain, that, that may also be in accordance with Pararabdha. So, uh, I'm hungry. Should I just stop uh, stop making any attempt to eat because uh, it's all according to destiny? If I'm to die of starvation, it's destiny. So let me stop eating. That's, of course, we 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 when we're hungry, we if food is available, we eat the food. Um, when when if we have a back pain, we do whatever is reasonable to alleviate that pain. But we shouldn't be overly obsessed with that. If it's our destiny to experience back pain. We take reasonable steps to alleviate that, but we don't. We don't. We shouldn't let that become uh, the sole purpose of our life. So we we need to be sensible about these things. If it's your destiny to do exercises to alleviate the pain in your back. Even if you want to leave it all to Bhagavan, he will make you do those exercises. So don't worry about, we shouldn't be worrying about these things. All that we need to do is to try more and more to turn within. Let the outward life, eating food, 
exercising to alleviate pain, taking medicine, whatever it be, let that go on according to destiny. We're not concerned with that. Our only concern should be to turn within. I think this is the last question on karma, and then we can move on yeah. to, if you're still able to talk yeah. back, some of the questions which have come in. So the question is, regarding karma, I think a lot of these questions are rising because we are doing things that we know are not righteous, but feel we are forced by some unknown force. There is a verse in the Gita, 3.36, where Arjuna asks exactly this. The way I understand that, Michael, is conveying... Oh, the way I understand what Michael is conveying is that the wanting to commit that sinful act is different from the act itself. This is what Lord Krishna replies in the next verse, 3.37. Is my understanding correct? Uh, yes, yes, I, I, I think so. I mean, yeah, uh, it's what we, when it comes to action, what we need to, we, we cannot determine to what extent any action we do is according to destiny or according to our will. If we want to avoid acting in accordance with our will, we need to avoid allowing ourselves to be swayed by any Vishaya Vasanas. In other words, we need to hold on to self-attentiveness. To the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness, we are thereby not allowing ourselves to be swayed by our Vishaya Vasanas. Thereby, we are avoiding doing our Gamya. If we, if we, beyond that, I mean, why to exercise our intellect beyond that? Yes, with any action, it's, ultimately, it's not the action, it's, the, it's what is driving that action that matters. If, if the action is driven purely by the will of God, there is no fruit at all. If it is an action that is driven at least to some extent by our vasanas, that action has a fruit. So what we need to do, avoid is being swayed by our Vishaya vasanas. How to avoid being swayed by our Vishaya vasanas? Only by holding on to self-attentiveness. So we, whatever way we analyze it, all that is required is trying to hold on to self-attentiveness. Not Bhagavan didn't ask us to worry about good actions and bad actions. In Nana, he says, however great a sinner may, one may be, if instead of lamenting, oh, I'm a sinner, how can I be saved? If you put aside the thought that you're a sinner and are steadfast in self-attentiveness, you will surely be saved. So Bhagavan ultimately is not even concerned about good or bad actions. All he's concerned about is that the doer of good or bad actions should subside and that doer of actions will the doer of good or bad actions is ego ego will subside to the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness so holding on to self-attentiveness alone is uh, should be our sole aim uh, the next question now was sent uh... Actually, there are two questions sent by email. So the questions are about sleep and light. The first question is, to me, sleep is comfortable darkness. In a couple of YouTube satsangs, however, you said, in deep sleep, there is only pure awareness. And in deep sleep, there's only light. Okay. And it goes on. 
but there's no light for me in sleep. How come? Okay. Um, light here doesn't mean physical light. Light is light is a, is a metaphor that is often used to refer to awareness. Just like the physical objects of the world are made known by physical light, the all thing, all all phenomena are made known by the light of the mind. In other words, ego. The awareness that is ego is what makes everything known. It's only the view of ego, but all other things exist. But from where does ego get its light? Ego is the adjunct conflated awareness. I am this body. But the light that illumines ego is that fundamental awareness I am. So that is the light. Um, this person who, who wrote this said, to me, sleep is comfortable darkness. So that the very fact that you say sleep is comfortable darkness means that you're aware of that comfort and you're aware of that darkness. So what is the light that illumines that comfort, that illumines that darkness? Illumines means enables you to know. How do you know but sleep is comfortable darkness because of the light of awareness. And in, in sleep, there is no ego. In sleep, we don't say, ah, oh, this is very nice, comfortable darkness. It's only after waking from sleep that we as ego say, oh, sleep was a nice, comfortable state of darkness. So uh, it's only in the view of the ego that that is called darkness. It's only ego that labels it as darkness. What actually shines in sleep is not comfort, is not darkness, is only the pure awareness I am. That It is comfort in the sense that that pure awareness is the ultimate comfort. Um, but we, we don't, we, they, when we refer to it, when we give it a label, it's only in waking and dream that we rise as ego and thereby label sleep as comfortable darkness. In sleep, all that shines in sleep is that fundamental awareness of our own being, I am. That is the light that is referred to. So the very fact that you're aware that sleep is a comfortable darkness means that you're aware of that light because that that what you refer to as comfortable darkness is illumined by that light that fundamental light of pure being the light of such it pure being awareness so it, i think the, the 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 reason for this comment for this question is because of not understanding the sense in which the term light is referred to Light, that is the light of awareness, is called a light only because it is what uh, is what illumines things in the sense it makes things known. Just like the physical light makes the physical objects known, the light of awareness makes the, the presence of phenomena in waking and dream and the absence of phenomena in sleep, both are illumined only by that fundamental awareness I am. Michael, it's... Uh... So, can I just say one more thing? So, the light is there. You're simply overlooking the fact that it is a light. That same light that is shining in sleep, that light of pure awareness that is shining in sleep, is shining even now, because it shines as the awareness I am, which uh, 
which we are all constantly aware of. It's the ever-shining light. Yes, sorry, Shalini. No, Michael, it's just that it's, uh, it's two hours now, and I was wondering whether you want to continue. There is another part to this question. Yeah, another part to this question, one other question by email, if we can finish these two. Okay. So this one is, uh, in a couple of YouTube videos, you explain that the light of pure awareness shines through the mind, and in brackets, ego, it's a question, into the world. Why would awareness do that? It only knows itself. It has no business in the world of objects and phenomena. Could you shine some light um, on this or into this for me to get a better understanding of this? Um, why does the light of pure awareness shine? Its very nature is shining. Nothing, there would um, be no mind or world could appear except in that light. It is not that the light of pure awareness chooses, I, now today I will shine through the mind into the world. It's not like that. That light is, is the one and only reality. That, that which is ever, shine, ever existing and ever shining is only that light of pure awareness. When we rise as ego, ego is the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body. In that adjunct conflated awareness, the I am portion is chit. The uh, body portion is jada. That is why ego is called chit jada granti, the not uh, formed by the entanglement of chit and jada. So the chit is the light, the light of pure awareness. So the mind, sh the mind is illumined by that light of pure awareness, but ever sh shines as I am. And it's only in the view of the mind that the world seems to exist. So the, the world is illumined by the mind in the sense that the, the world appears only in the view of the mind. So without the mind, there's no world. The world neither exists nor shines in the absence of the mind. So it's by the light of the mind that the world shines. But by what light does the mind shine? or mind or ego, it shines only by the light of pure awareness that is ever shining within it as I am. So the one real light is this light of pure awareness that ever shines as I am. So when you ask why would awareness do that, because its very nature is shining. It, it doesn't choose to shine through the mind or into the world. It's when we rise as ego, it, we we could not rise as ego but for that light of pure awareness. But the pure awareness is not doing anything. The nature of pure awareness is just being. That's why it's called sat-chit, being awareness. It, is, it's, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't want anything. It just, it, it just is. Um, and as you say, it knows only itself. But it's... So the world appears only in the view of the mind, and the mind could not appear but for that fundamental light. So what is, the, the crucial question is, what is this mind? What is this I that is aware of this world? The world appears only in the view of this I, that is aware of itself as I am this body. If we investigate this I, the adjuncts drop off, 
and the pure eye alone remains. And when that pure eye alone remains, then it will be clear to us that we have never risen as ego and that we have, there has never been any such thing as world. So the, the important point is, the whole aim of Bhagavan's teachings is getting us to turn within to investigate who am I. Now this I seems to be ego because it's because it's mixed and conflated with adjuncts as I am this body, I am this person. What it actually is, is just that pure awareness I am. We can know ourselves with that pure awareness I am alone only by turning our attention within. So that's the whole point of Bhagavan's teachings. I hope, I don't know if the person who asked this question is here, but if you are, I hope this is, this is a clear answer for you. Cheryl? She is here, but I don't know if she wants to yes, ask I'm, anything. I'm here. It's uh, quite difficult to understand, and I'm glad you uh, explained it a bit. I will ponder over it, and if that—that uh... that is, there's a limit to how much we can understand by mind. If we really want to understand Bhagavan's teachings, the only way to get a deep and clear understanding of Bhagavan's teachings is to turn within more and more and more. The more we turn within, the more meaningful his words will become to us. Yeah, I find it difficult. I to it, dive. To, 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 to find a way, where is, where is it? I, I, find it, I find it still difficult. It, 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 will, it will be difficult. If you've never been to a country and you're shown a map of that country, that map will give you a vague idea of how that country is. Here there's a city, here there's a river, here there are mountains. But we don't get a clear picture of what that country is like until we mm. actually go there. Once we go to that country, and then when we look at the map, the map becomes so much more meaningful for us. So Bhagavan's yeah. teachings in words are like the map. We have to travel to that country, but the map is, is depicting. That country is within ourselves, in our own heart. The more we turn within, the more we turn back towards that light that illumines the mind, namely the light of pure awareness that ever shines as our own being, I am, the clearer these words will become. Okay. So there's no substitute for practice. It's, we need to understand the words, at least to some extent, in order to start on the practice. Mm -hmm. But the real clarity will come only by the practice. And the more we go deep in the practice, the more meaningful Bhagavan's words will become, the clearer the significance of Bhagavan's words will become. Okay. Because the original light is the light that is ever shining in our own heart as our own being. So if we attend to that light that is ever shining as I am, in other words, the light of awareness, that doesn't mean light like a physical light. It is, we, we all know clearly I am. There's nothing that is so clear as I am. We can doubt everything else. One thing we cannot reasonably doubt is our own being, our own existence. I am. That is the light what we need to be attending to. The more we attend to that light, the more meaningful Bhagavan's teachings will become, because his teachings are all about that light. Okay. Thank which you is our much. own being. Okay. There's nothing okay. other than ourselves. 
I will keep on practicing. Thank you very much. Well, we all have to keep on practicing, but the more we practice, the clearer these things will become to us. Yeah. Thanks again. Right. Appreciate. Right. Uh, Michael, uh, <clears throat> those are the two questions which I have uh, from uh, by email. There Should is we... also, I sent you also one that uh, I was sent. There's one Mohan had also asked a question. Do you have that or in the reply to that, I uh, I forwarded that to you and I I can I can ask the question if you want. Or if Mohan is here, is Mohan here? I don't know. It looks like Mohan isn't here. Okay, it's a very simple. What this person called Mohan wrote uh, the, the Ramana Maharshi Foundation saying, I'm a keen follower of Advaita Vedanta for the last few years. The concept of rope and snake and there exists only the self is still not clear to me. Could you please throw more light on the above for my understanding? Um let's start with there only exists the self. There only exists the self means what actually exists is only our self as we actually are. What we actually are is the only thing that actually exists. As it is said in Upanishads, we are ekam eva advitiam. We are one only without a second. If Since we are one only without a second, how to explain the appearance of all this multiplicity? We are one, but we see all this manyness. So does this manyness not exist? Yes, manyness seems to exist, but it doesn't actually exist. What actually exists is only our self as we actually are. This manyness appears and disappears. It appears in waking and dream. It disappears in sleep. But we remain in sleep. We we the we means the fundamental awareness I am continues in all these three states. The I that is now awake, the, the I that was dreaming, and the I that was sleeping are all one and the same I. So I is the one thing that shines in all three states. In waking and dream, that I shines along with so many other things. In sleep, it shines alone. Since other things appear and disappear, they are not real. What is real is only I. But the I that is now aware of other things is not the pure I. It is that same pure I mixed and conflated with adjuncts. Now we are aware of ourselves as a person. I am Michael, I am Mohan, I am whoever. Uh, that I that is aware of itself as I am Mohan, that is not the pure I, that is ego. But within that ego, the pure I is shining. So in the, in the compound awareness, I am Mohan, I am is the pure awareness, uh, the Satchit. Uh, um, Mohan is the name of a body, which that I am is now mixed and conflated with. So ego is a confusion. It's a confusion of two different things. That's why it's called chit jada granti. The chit portion is I am. Chit means the awareness portion is I am. The jada portion or non-aware portion is mohan or the body, but is called mohan. But so 
Ego is an adjunct conflated awareness I am. Only in the view of ego all this multiplicity appears. So what actually exists is only the pure awareness I am. But we've risen as ego and we experience all this multiplicity. So the analogy of the rope and snake is just to illustrate this. If, if we see a rope and mistake it to be a snake, what is actually there is only a rope. Even when it seems to be a snake, it's actually only a rope. So there never is a snake there, there's only a rope. But it's, the snake seems to exist because we mistake the, the rope to be a snake in exactly the same way. Just like the rope alone is actually there, what actually exists is only such it, I am. That is the only thing that actually exists. But now we see that such it as all this multiplicity. So this multiplicity is like the snake. The snake is just an appearance. It never actually exists. Likewise, all this multiplicity. Multiplicity means both ego, which is the subject, and all the things known by ego, which are the objects, both subject and object of a snake. They are just a mere appearance. What actually exists is only the rope. So how now we are experiencing all this multiplicity. How do we how can we know for ourselves that what actually exists is only ourselves? So long as we are looking outwards, so long as we're looking away from ourselves, we experience all this multiplicity. But if we turn our attention back within to see who am I? In other words, if we attend only to ourselves, only to this fundamental awareness, I, everything else will drop off. The, the, the ego will subside and dissolve back into the pure I. All other things will drop off. And then what alone exists, alone will remain shining as it always is. So that is like if you, if you see a rope and mistake it to be a snake, the only, so long as you see it as a snake, you'll be afraid of it. But the only way to overcome your fear of that snake is to look at the snake very carefully. If you look at the very snake very carefully, you'll see, oh, it's not a snake, it's only a rope. Likewise, if we look at ego very carefully, we, ego is the adjunct completed awareness. I, I am this body, I am Mohan. But if we look at this I that is aware of itself as I am Mohan very carefully, Mohan will drop off and the pure I alone will remain. That, so that is, the, that is the, the reason this analogy is given. It is to distinguish between the reality and the appearance. The rope is what is real. The snake is an appearance. Likewise, that's as far as the analogy is concerned. What is real is only I. Everything else is, uh, is an appearance. So if we investigate this I to see what we actually are, the appearance will disappear, just like the, um, the snake disappears when you look at it carefully enough and see that it's just a rope. If we look at ourselves carefully enough to see what we actually are, the appearance of multiplicity will remain, will disappear, and what will remain is one only without a second, namely ourself, as we actually are. The pure awareness, I am. Such it. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arana Chalaramanaya. Thank you very much, Michael. That really was very, very helpful. I found it personally very helpful um, just to 
but how we look at the world and how we can turn yeah. within uh, is really good. Um, I just want to apologize. Uh, I know that many of you have asked quite a few questions. Uh, could could you ask them next time? It's just that this time we concentrated on uh, free will and karma, uh, vasanas and so on. And uh, so we, it wasn't possible because because sometimes these uh, the talks are themed as, you know, which is very helpful. And uh, so we could only ask that, those questions and two more uh, to do with, which had been emailed in advance. Thank you for your forbearance, and I hope you can ask next time. And thank you very, very much, Michael. Uh, as always, uh, thank you. Uh, so. All thanks to Bhagavan. Can I just point out what Bhagavan has said? Yes, it was very helpful. Extremely, extremely helpful. Um, so we can uh, close with Bhagavan's mantra. Oh. Namo Bhagavate Sri Ramanaya Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Ramanaya Om Namo Bhagavate Shri Ramanaya